listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast with your host Andy Plymer. For someone to explain, bringing you up-to-date coaching concepts from the world of rugby. Sharing ideas to make the game better. Okay, welcome to episode number thirty of the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast. I'm your host Andy Plymer, and joining me today is John Alder. John hails from Gloucester, UK, and comes from a rugby family who passionately support the Cherry and Whites. John was a junior international player, Gloucester Academy member, and then played senior rugby at the Exeter Chiefs before being forced to retire young at 23 following a niggling shoulder injury. It was then that John turned to coaching, followed by coach development. John has since established himself as an international coach developer who brings experience in crafting and delivering leadership and learning solutions to coaches and sport organisations around the world. He worked extensively with New Zealand Rugby League and during that time completed a PhD in high-performance sport management with a particular focus upon culture-driven leadership and change. John is currently the Talent and Performance Coaching Manager at Sports Coach UK and it's a pleasure to have you on the show, John, so welcome. Uh, G'day, Andrew. How are you going? Good, good. Thanks for joining us. No worries, no pleasure's all mine, mate. I'm humbled to be uh, have the opportunity to chat with you, mate, today. Perfect. All right. So, um, just uh, for for the listeners, um, what, what's a bit of a, a shortened version of the introduction I did? Um, you know, how did you end up in your current role as coaching manager uh, at Sports Coach UK? Um, uh, probably of interest more to, more to the listeners. My 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 roots are very much f- firmly in rugby. I um I grew up in the southwest of England in a town called Gloucester, yep. which um, in my eyes is the rugby heartland. Um, a working class town where yeah, if debatable. The board's- <laughs> if the ball's not oval, then it, you know it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Um, and into a rugby family, uh, uncle played 200 games for for Gloucester in the 70s when um, when they were one of the best clubs around and won the, the first English knockout cup. And interestingly, for the sort of as a bit of backstory, as a kid, um, I was on the backroom staff of the, of the Gloucester team with my uncle as the kit man, and, yeah, and I was great. the kick and tee water boy. Um, awesome. And so I had a, a pretty unique experience and shop window into uh, the workings of a, of a what was then I suppose an elite rugby team mm. um, and that went right through professionalization so very much from when there was an amateur group of you know carpenters and whatnot coming together um, to when they were fully pro and I was fortunate to um, I was there when Philippe Saint-André was coach and saw the likes of Phil Vickery and Trevor Woodman make wow. the club debuts and, and then internationals that were there such as um, Jason Little and, and Ian Jones wow. um, so as a, as a young kid I was I was pretty fortunate and and firmly planted rugby and sport you know at, at the core of my purpose and, and what really got me out of bed in the morning um then as a yeah, as a played a bit um played junior international rugby um for england and spent some time playing at gloucester and a uh, club called north in sydney and then, and then extra chiefs um where i finished up as uh, pretty young really um then coached uh, ran the rugby program at a boarding school in the uk and then skipped across to new zealand to work at a university and then ended up in a high performance role um at new zealand rugby league where i completed a, a phd in, in culture and leadership um and have since moved back to to the uk to my current role at sports coach uk but firmly with with rugby in my veins yeah uh, or oh. i'm a little bit more distance from it now than i used to be yeah yeah oh that's uh, i'm sure yeah I'm sure you're right into it uh, now after England uh, did a little trip over to Australia and had a, a reasonable amount of success. With their English coach? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, all, it's all good. Um, yeah, that, that, was a, that was an amazing, uh, amazing thing to see how quickly that, that team got you know, put into a winning way. And uh, yeah, even, even as an Aussie who's you know, 
a Wallabies fan rusted on, uh, you got to respect the, the coaching process that went on there. Yeah, and I think from a coaching point of view, what um, a narrative that has been in the media, but I'd like to promote more would be around, um, you know, Stuart Lancaster got a, a, a bit of a rough ride at the end of his, his tenure with England and, and, and probably a lot of really good work that he put in a really good foundations maybe got glossed over when he got unceremoniously booted out and given Eddie's sort of pretty quick turnaround and success, obviously he's faded into, into uh, faded a little bit in terms of his legacy. But um, it was a neat story that when he was kicked out and Eddie was brought in, um, he, he went to Eddie and said, I want to share everything, you know, because this is about the England team getting better and it's not about my ego or your ego or, um, you know, I thought it was just quite a neat summary of, um, of, of what sort of guy he is. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, so um, I'm thinking Eddie's built on some some solid foundations, as he said. But um, equally, the transformation is pretty um, pretty amazing. Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, that that's an awesome story, isn't it? Like just huge for someone to do that, rather than to be all pissed off and you know take their toys and and go home. That's that's pretty awesome. And, and yeah, if you if you look at that squad that was in Australia, there was you're right, it wasn't much different. Maybe a few new faces like Atoje and and a couple others, but really the World Cup team wasn't hugely different to what what Eddie Jones had selected. Yeah, I mean the the, the we we we'd never know because we weren't on the on the inner inner of it but the impact of Sam Burgess and that all that whole story whether that is made as a scapegoat for the failure or whether it actually had a more significant impact um we'll never know and and whether there'll be coaches that'll be kicking themselves for making that call. Mm. Uh, um and um but faced a similar sort of challenge um, in my own professional career with, with the New Zealand Kiwis, actually, which was similar around selection and players being brought in um, at late doors and, and all for good reasons, but maybe not having the outcome that, that yeah, we might have thought. Yeah. So, well, maybe we can, we can come back to that in a, in, a, in a little while when we talk about your role with NZ Rugby League. But um, what, um, So you're, you're in coach development, but you also mentioned that you did do some coaching. What, what, was, what, what, what draws you to coach development as opposed to coaching? Um, I suppose it was. It's really the, the, the nexus of, of luck, opportunity, and, and interest. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved coaching, and I, and, I, and I still miss being on the grass. And which I, I was quite a nice bit of my role in New Zealand League was I did occasionally get out on the grass um, with with the the young athletes, which was which was really good fun. But um, I suppose when I was coaching, I found that I was interested. Um, increasingly in the how to coach rather than necessarily what I was coaching. Mm-hmm. So sort of the actual coaching and the social process of coaching, um, individual and team development rather than necessarily the, the technical or, or tactical subtleties of, of the game. You know, um, I had friends who I coached with who were far, far more proficient technically um, and, you know, astute tacticians, whereas I was more interested in, well, how do we translate this great tactical and technical knowledge into, you know, helping these young athletes get better and, and deliver on the field. Um, so that was really what, what sort of became increasingly my interest. Um, and then there's the, the subtle factors that make the difference between, you know, success and failure, um, which are often not necessarily the, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the strategy or the, um, or, or some of the techniques or, or that sort of thing. It's often the, the interpersonal piece. Mm. So that was very much the, it was the, the coaching was what grabbed me, and I probably became less ob- obsessive about the, 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 you know, your exit strategy from your 22 or, or how you might attack a, you know, uh, the, 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 the goal line after, you know, six, um, you know, six sets, not sets. Um, phases. Yeah, phases. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> rugby league too long. Rugby league. <laughs> <clears throat> Perfect, yeah. Okay, so um, 
you know, pretty broad question here. What what do you feel uh, good coach development should should look like? I suppose in in an ideal world for for me, um, you know, good coaching is good coaching. You know, whether you're coaching um, athletes or whether you're coaching coaches, I think there's some fundamental principles that that will go across all that whole space. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I, I would say it's people focused. It's about being needs led. So the, whether it's the athlete or whether it's the coach you're working with, it's their needs that are driving um, the development, um, not yours. Mm-hmm. Um, it's experience driven. So it's gr- grounded heavily in your understanding of experience and the experience you've had as a coach um, rather than uh, maybe an expert coming in with some concepts which aren't necessarily related to your experience mm-hmm. um, or you can't see the meaning because you can't connect it to your experience. Uh, I think good coach development's community-based. Um, uh, some great work going on in Canada in, in research around this idea of communities of practice for coach learning. Um, it is uh, Diane Culver and, and Diego Duarte at um, University of Ottawa doing okay. some great work. And yeah, how, how coaches learn in communities. So I think very much we, we learn from, from, from other coaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, it's, it's community-based too. Um, I think personally, uh, it's, it's not about certificates or qualifications or standardized knowledge or matrix of competencies. I, I think so, people can make justifications for those as part of coach development, but it doesn't fit my philosophy or, or beliefs. Um, I think, yeah, primarily the best learning occurs in context. Yeah. You know, we'll learn to coach by coaching. Yeah. Um, it's difficult to learn to play a piano by talking about it and debating it. <laughs> yeah. actually, sometimes you just got down and play the keys. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a, a colleague of mine, um, who works for UK sport and sporting on the, his favorite phrase is junior doctors don't have a junior doctor development program because being a junior doctor is a development program. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the learning community around the junior doctors that help them explore the medical problems. Mm. Um, so you think it's about you know how, how do you make how do you help a coach make sense of their their experience of coaching, um, rather than putting them on a, a qualification where they would be assessed against some predefined um, sort of uh, competencies. There is a place for that, but it, for me, it's yeah maybe a different place, or it just doesn't fit my my sort of beliefs and philosophy. All right, so, fantastic. Just touching on um, the, the the team culture and the relationships piece that you mentioned earlier on, you you actually did a master's. Uh, thesis on uh, titled coaches' perceptions of team culture in elite sports. Um, what what were some of the key findings from that, and how how, how do you think coaches listening can apply um, what you found out in that in that? I mean, just just to preface that um, might be of interest to sort of how I got to this idea of what you know what what made me want to spend all this time thinking about team culture. Mm. Uh, I had a, a buddy that was on the staff at um, a professional rugby club in in the UK uh, that had been struggling for a, a period of time, and um, he said they've employed this Australian company that are the you know this concept of team culture and they're mm-hmm. experts at change, um, and they'd had all this success with the AFL teams and NRL teams and he actually um, gave me a book to read which I would recommend if anyone's interested in this. Um, it's called Any Given Team by yeah. a guy called Ray, Ray McLean. Yeah, we've uh, had him on the show. Oh well, there you go, yeah, mate. Yeah. And, um, it's one of my favourites too. Mate, the book just blew that's, me away, and I just thought, wow, this is you know, and I'd come at very much. I was an ex sort of junior decent junior player and I'd probably approach my coaching very much as I had been coached and as maybe I liked to be coached and I had some ideas around it and this book just sort of opened my, my eyes to a, a different way of looking at it um but sadly that the model and the way they the, the way it worked out at that club it didn't it was it was well, it wasn't very particularly successful um and I then wonder well you know why has it worked here and it hasn't worked there and what's mm. the what is it about it so I thought I'll 
do my um yeah I'll do I'll do a bit of research into it and I interviewed uh five professional coaches um one of one which was a pilot project two two of them were rugby coaches there was a basketball coach a netball coach and a, and a soccer coach who'd all achieved um a, like a performance transformation um from taking on a pretty struggling team to 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 success mm-hmm. whether that's climbing a league or whether it's winning a championship um, and I was interested in their perspectives of what role did team culture play in that and how did they change it if they did. Um, so much of what we knew about team culture or sorry, much of what we knew about team dynamics had come from sort of the sp- sports psychology literature around cohesion, you know, and it broken it broken the sort of team dynamics down into a binary sort of it's either a task cohesion so you're either working together for a task or it's a social cohesion and you're working together because you you know like being together um trying to quantify human behavior and i thought well i'm not sure it's that simple uh, i think it's a lot more complex so i thought I'd, I'd look i borrowed some stuff from from management and leadership and came across organizational culture so i went and spoke to these coaches and and tried to unpack well what you know where does all this fit for them and how they change their teams um so the key findings briefly would have been around the you know, stuff that would probably be quite um wouldn't be uh ground breaking for for the listeners so yeah importance of having a, a really clear vision and your guiding values and principles um using creative ways to communicate a desired culture mm-hmm. through reward or sanctions recruitment the way you might set up the physical environment your training environment the way you monitor stuff the dialogue and the words and the narratives that you use um and then and, and using strategies for sustainable change, such as um, being really consistent, so walking the walking the talk, um, using empowerment approaches, um, and continually going back to you know what is our culture and and, and does it need to evolve and, and and how do we evolve it? So continually foregrounding that as a matter of importance. Um, so while what was interesting, while there were common themes, and those were some of the common themes, each coach approached the challenge of picking up a struggling team in a different way. You know, uh, some were very democratic from the outset, mm-hmm. handing ownership over to the team immediately, um, whereas one was quite dogmatic and ma- almost Machiavellian in his approach. Mm. So use culture as a bit of a manipulative tool for okay. social control. Um, and another was uh, he was very subtle and covert. Mm-hmm. So actually didn't talk too much about it, but tweaked things in the environment that helped to bring to life these these elements of the culture whether it's values of trust and respect or whether it was um you know the importance of team over the individual um but certainly didn't talk about it i think that was it. i think that was the, the big thing was that yeah they there were some common themes but they all actually did approach it differently and ultimately from a pragmatic perspective they achieved a, the performance outcome they were looking for yeah i think i think that kind of goes to show there's there's many ways to skin a cat right like there's not one perfect right way to coach and that everyone has their own uh you know style and nuances yeah yeah and i uh, i think it's about the it's the, the the right the right thing for the right people at the right time mm-hmm. um would be what i what i would think and then there's what fits for you as a coach and your philosophy and what feels right um but that was quite interesting that sort of a, a lot of the literature would say that you know we do have to be democratic and we do have to be you know the, the ownership piece and being athlete centered and um whereas you did have a coach who was actually quite successful being mm. dogmatic mm. and quite manipulative yeah uh, from a philosophical point of view the idea of trying to control others doesn't fit well with me but exactly yeah. pragmatists would say well if he's winning championships who cares yeah, um yeah. but again it comes back to your philosophy but yeah. that was some yeah some summaries from that but it was a, a so some really neat takeaways um i think one just to think of a, a couple of quotes off the top of my head um 
one from the basketball coach who had a tremendous amount of success um, in the pro league in Australia and New Zealand. He'd, um, yeah, he, he said early on in his career, they'd established these set of values and, uh, and what the team was to stand for. Um, and then he had a, uh, the team was struggling. They hadn't had a lot of success and they kept banging these values and, uh, and trying to embed that in the culture. Um, and he had the chance to recruit someone who didn't fit, but was, you know, on paper and on video, a very good player and might've given him a chance to, um, to, uh, to, to get a head up the table of the, you know, the, the rankings table. And, uh, and he did that. And it, he said it came back to bottom in the, in the backside. And he said his biggest learning there was, you know, if, if they're your values, you stick to your values. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Um, but in many ways, he said he had to, he had to go through the process to really learn that, mm-hmm. um, which might be something that will, if we, if we talk about my PhD in a bit, that might be something that might link back in that um, whilst we might have, you know, we might, the, the literature might say this and good practice says this. Sometimes people have got to experience the failure before yeah. they actually recognize, you know, this is actually critical. Mm, uh, for um, sure. You, you know, it's experiential learning. You learn by doing and sometimes you do the wrong thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that's well. I just drop go back to the the point you talked about with Ray McLean. If uh, listeners are interested and they haven't heard episode eight, they should definitely check it out. Um, that book, Any Given Team, that completely changed the way I coached. Um, I I can't recommend it more highly. Um, he's also got another one called Teamwork, which is a, a pretty good read as well. Um, and I've got that up on my website, um, so listeners can uh, go and find the link to it. And yeah. uh, and uh, it's it should be mandatory reading for all coaches, I feel. Yeah, it's a, yeah, a central course text. Yeah, absolutely. All right, <laughs> um, cool. Oh, yep, go. I was going to ask you, I mean, I'm, I'm, just for the, the, the listeners, I mean, mm. I, as far as I understand it, they, Ray and his sort of company in the early days almost fundamentally changed the way a lot of AFL teams you oh, know, and, um, and rugby league teams approach the way they manage their team. Yeah, uh, they, they would pre- that be correct? Yeah, absolutely. They, you know, they were heavily involved with the Sydney Swans, Hawthorne, uh, St Kilda. Uh, had a time with the Waratahs, um, couple Melbourne of rugby leagues, Melbourne Storm team. I think, I think they're with the Knights now, with um, uh, Brown as the head coach there. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they worked with him uh, in in his playing days. Um, but yeah, they they were some of the innovators of you know things such as a leadership group. You know, yeah. like uh, you know th- a, 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 that never happened. It used to be the coach and maybe the captain. And yeah, um, yeah, it's, uh, the, Ray McLean's been revolutionary in that in that um, in that con- those kind of concepts. And yeah, his company's leading teams. Uh, mm. And yeah, there uh, there's some great reading there that everyone should be into. Yeah, because you often look at, if you look at it now, you go, well, you know, leadership teams they're common practice. Mm. Well, where did that start? And I'm, yeah, and the first time I've come across it was through the work that Ray was doing in, in, in the codes in Aussie and whether it was happening at other places. But, um, you know, it's like you said, mate, it fundamentally changed the way I am. Um, I looked at it. It was just yeah. an inspiring read and a very, very cool read as well. Yeah, well, and it actually kind of leads me on to my next, uh, next question. Like reading that book actually then took me down the path of athlete-centered coaching um, just because that's – that that is his model about culture is that it's you know, you're just a facilitator and mm. it's actually their culture and you're just overseeing it. Um, with regards to athlete centered coaching, what what what's that kind of look like and why should why should coaches kind of know about it and consider um, using it? Um, I could I could throw this one back at you actually, mate. What do you what 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 what's your thoughts when you first 
think what, what, what comes springs to mind when you hear oh, the words I mean, athletes and a coaching? This this has never happened to me on the show before. You've uh, put me in the spot, but I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll have a crack for sure. Um, for for me, it's um, it's players having ownership over key decisions within both on the field and off the field. Um, you know, with with some parameters and. Uh, but those parameters are decided by the players. They they guide, you know, what 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 is acceptable behaviour and what is not, con- considering what kind of team we want to be. Um, with regards to the X's and O's on the on the field, um, I I just think it needs to be super inclusive that that everyone is involved, everyone um, is getting the same experiences as. The player next to them, and that you know, if you're if you're a guy in second grade on the bench, you're you're having the chance to improve and get better and be on that first grade side, just as the starting guy in the first grade team uh, also has those opportunities. Um, so yeah, it's, it's for me, it's like about you know fairness and equality and player ownership uh, over the process and fun. It's kind of got to be fun for people to want to still do it. Boom! You nailed it, mate. Oh yes, mate. Well, you know, you know, well, well, mate. You, you should be answering the questions. Let me ask them now. That's an idea for the next one. Yeah, next yeah, podcast. Right we'll do, we'll do that. Someone else can ask the questions yeah. and they can interview you, mate. For sure. Um, yeah, well, I absolutely would second um, a lot of what you said, mate. Um, for me, I suppose, yeah, athlete centre coaching is is putting the athlete at the centre of the coaching process. Mm. Um, I mean, in terms of why I think it's important, I think it facilitates holistic development. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's a humanistic approach mm. to sport, you know. And if we look at the sort of some of the success literature around talent and performance, you know, um, it's it's important. Um, you know, the holistic growth part is important for talent development, but it's also important for lifelong engagement in sport and some of the sort of um, the social benefits and some of the um, health benefits. You know, so um, I think. Um, in athletes and coaching, sports becomes the vehicle for developing people mm. and not just performers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, uh, it taps into a number of psychosocial theories that of motivation, you know, like, um, self-determination theory, mm-hmm. um, the idea of having autonomy or a coach allowing an athlete to have autonomy and ownership of their learning um, to um, show their competence and to be connected to their peers. Mm. Um you know, as, as, as three central strands to being, you know, self-motivated and, and self-determined. Um, it also taps into sort of your hierarchy of needs by Maslow and mm. sort of your um, self-actualization, you know, and not just your basic bread and butter, I go to work to get paid and that's all. You know, if, um, if, if you're putting the athlete at the center of the coaching process and you're enabling them to take responsibility and, and have ownership, you know, you're moving them up those, you know, hierarchy of needs so they can become self-actualized. Yeah. Uh, yeah this, is, uh, this is taking me back to first year uh, university pedagogy. Um, <laughs> all those theories cross over teachings, coaching, really. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I, um, I think... Um, yeah, the sexy term I, I would imagine at the moment is ped- pedagogy. They may call it, but yeah, yeah, um, yeah, just um, quality coaching. I mean, uh, f- in terms of a, a interesting question is how how would you know coaches are doing it or not? Mm, yeah, exactly. Uh, and I suppose uh, you could look at through a number of lenses. Uh, start for ten would be to look at the coaching practices on a continuum mm-hmm. from sort of coach centered to athlete centered. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what is the coach doing, and who is he doing it for? Is it for himself, for their needs, or their even their ego, mm-hmm. or is it for the athletes? Mm-hmm. Um, functionally, 
is he being autocratic and dictatorial as we we talked about or instructional is it my way you know i've got the ideas and you're going to just follow my instructions or is he or she using questions and drawing on the athlete's knowledge and experience on their wants and their needs so they're using empowerment and a, a common practice would be sort of uh teaching games for understanding as a if someone's using that you know that i would say they're on the way to being athlete centered yeah um because um as a you know or game sense i think we you, know, you guys call it in aussie mm. um you know as a method of coaching that is you know it's um highly needs driven it is highly exploratory it's highly self-determined and the, the athletes take responsibility players take responsibility for their um for what they're doing and you just sort of manage the, the constraints of the game yeah. um or is a does the coach actually listen to their players mm. uh, you know, and do they use this in how they deliver? Uh, then at the deeper level, athlete centered coaching, um, I suppose, is we should remind us no, isn't the, the issue. And my colleague Lynn Kidman wrote in a recent paper that it, you know it's her challenge to people moving forward now. Athlete centered coaching has been around for a while, is not to reduce it to a checklist of coaching tools. Yeah. You know, if I do questioning, tick. If I uh, use games, tick. If I, um, you know, uh, ask them how they feel at the start of the session, tick. I'm being athlete-centered. It's it's much deeper. It's a philosophy. It's a way of being. You know, um, it's grounded in a deep, like a deep human care. Mm-hmm. Totally. Others to grow and as people and, and and performers. You know, and then the the question would be, if you're wondering how if how will I know if a coach is doing it? How well do they know their players? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, um. And then you could look at the other side of the coin, and if it's really about if being athlete centered is being really about being needs needs driven and putting them at the center of the coaching process, how do the athletes look like? I mean, you look, you said fun. Are they happy? Are they mm. engaged? Is it joyful? Are they learning? Um, are they experimenting? Mm. But most for me, most importantly, are they leading? Are they taking responsibility um, and ownership of their development? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and no, I couldn't agree more. Um, okay, well, you, earlier you mentioned your, your PhD work with uh, New Zealand Rugby League. Um, what, what, what did that involve and you know, what, what were some of the, the highs and lows of that and some of the sort of learnings out of that for coaches? Yeah, it was a, it was a magical experience. It sort of allowed me, afforded me the opportunity to build on some unanswered questions from the masters and my coaching and this idea of team culture and trying to understand, you know, this, what some might call a warm and fuzzy mm. bit of coaching, <laughs> you know, um, away from your X's and O's. And, um, uh, uh yeah, they, they, uh, had an opportunity and a door opened with, with those guys and they, um, they wanted to know more about their culture and they wanted to, um, the culture of their national team and they wanted to know if they could change it and how they might go about changing it. Um, so, uh, through a bit of a consultation process, we uh, engaged in that dialogue and kicked it around and this sort of formed the, the basis, the foundation of my, of my doctorate, which was looking at how a, um, a high performance unit or how the leaders of a high performance unit could or could not facilitate change. Um, in, in the culture of, of, of the high-performance unit. So that included the players, the support staff, the managers, the coaches, and, the, and even the CEO as sort of the organizational lead of that. Um, so very much looked at it as a, the big picture stuff that hopefully would, if it was done properly and effectively, it would have an impact on the field. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I spent, yeah, three, it was two and a half years with the organization doing it. And then a year writing up away from them because I couldn't get it written up if I was to stay there because I was enjoying the work too much. <laughs> um, but um, 
so yeah in terms of key key findings or so i'll probably tell you a little bit about how we went about it so the first 12 months was really about understanding well, what makes the culture tick what are the some people might call it the values or the meanings mm-hmm. you know and how do players interact what what's valued within the environment um is what's said and what's done the same is when is it different um so it's trying to i would call a cultural audit um and it was probably it was uh, useful it was useful to have me come in from outside particularly yeah. as I, um, it was a challenge and a benefit because i uh, had it was time to become accepted because i was you know uh, for those who don't know, the, the New Zealand Rugby League team is predominantly Māori and Pacific Island, mm-hmm. uh, Island heritage. Um, and I was a you know a white kid from England, um, from rugby union, even worse, mm-hmm. um, coming into a league team. Um, so, but you know, I certainly didn't experience any rejection. They were very incredibly welcoming and, and warm. Um, but it took a little bit of time to for me to navigate my way into the culture. But I was able to ask the questions that maybe people within the culture would have assumed as, um, you know, the, the norm and the, almost like the silly questions. Yeah. Uh, and to highlight, you know, well, what, why did that happen? Um, you know, the um, one, one player did this and this was the outcome and another player did this and this they interacted like this and um, stuff that would have probably been either not even seen um, was allowed to be explored. And so we sort of mapped the culture out and then discussed this and said, well, where would we like to be? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and what's what's also what's valued and important that we want to build on. So like almost like a strength psychology point of view. So rather than throwing everything out the window and saying we we need to change everything, what's the um, what's the foundations of this team built on? And what, what you know what does it mean to be a Kiwi? What does it mean to be a New Zealander? Um, and how can we integrate that into the sort of fabric of the culture um, to build on? You know, to try and establish this sort of. Um, Shared purpose, shared philosophy, shared meaning, shared um, uh, vision for the team. Mm-hmm. Um, so after sharing that, we then went through a series of what the researchers would call action research cycles. So of trying to plan something, an intervention of some sort, implementing it, seeing how it goes, reviewing it, tinkering with it, reintroducing it. Um, so for, for in terms of the intervention, the, the, the big part for us was uh, what emerged from the, the cultural audit was that the New Zealandness was really important to yep. the group and yep. heritage of where the players were from yep. and who they were representing and family was really strong, um, which is no surprise for those who would know about the yep. you know Maori and Pacific Island communities, which are you know, deeply family based or Absolutely. based on family yeah. and extended family, um, and all the values that came from that metaphor of family. Um, was was incredibly important. So we we looked at start using that as the as the the, the foundation, um, and brought in things like t- we looked at the the haka was an important cultural symbol. Mm-hmm. But um, the kahaka kamate is traditionally um, uh, is is the traditional New Zealand haka, and obviously everyone would assume it was associated with the All Blacks. Mm-hmm. And the question was posed, you know, what does it um, what does it mean for us? Do we even know what it means, and or do we just do it because that's what we do? Mm. Um, and uh, out of the back of that, there was an, an, with a Maori cultural expert who came in, um, reauthored a bit of a, reauthored the haka um, based on the stories that the players told about what was important for them. Um, right. and then fed a lot of that story, tried to so the idea of narrative, wove that through the way the team was set up, the way the team sort of sh- shape on the field and some of the playing positions and, and that sort of thing. So the, the metaphor was a, a, a fari, which is a, um, a Māori house. Okay. Um, 
and um, and our traditional Maori uh, Maori sort of village tribal home um, and the different parts of the, the house and, and they're all have different meanings and different symbols and different players with or different parts of the team occupied different parts of the house and therefore you all belong to the house and therefore you all need to take care of the house and defend the house um, so that was our sort of initial intervention and we scoped that out and engaged with some of the players to, to sound check it and build it and and um, and then tested it out and then uh, went through and went up to the, the World Cup cycle um, in 2013 yeah. over in the UK. Um, and along along that, I was also trying to capture, well, how is it, uh, how has how the, um, the intervention landed? Um, how has it been in, in, introduced? How has it been built? How, is the, how have they received it? What's, has it had an impact? Um, has it changed, the, has it fundamentally changed the way they think or what they do? Um, and I suppose the the key the key outcomes were really probably um, around who drives that was probably not quite so clear. So I think a key outcome for coaches listening when we're around change, it needs to be first and foremost head coach driven. Mm-hmm. Um, for those working in sport organisations within pathways or even sort of in the high performance end, you've got this idea, this concept of the high performance manager or the the high performance director. Um, they often have strategic responsibility for the, the the performance of the team, but actually, in my experience, on the ground, have less direct impact on on the, the culture of the team. Actually, it's the, yeah. the head coach is the, is the driver. Yeah. So it needs to be head coach driven, um, and um, you do you, we need to understand the prevailing culture and its meanings before you try and initiate any sort of change. Yeah. Um, interesting side story. A, a colleague of mine. Who um, a, a professor in Australia? Actually, he works in New Zealand now, but he's an Australian um, ex rugby coach. Um, ended up in Japan and was quite a successful grade coach in, in Aussie. And went, oh, I'll teach these Japanese how to play rugby, and drop. He wouldn't mind me saying, dropped his approach in as a copy into Japan. Mm-hmm. And after a season, it flopped. And he said his biggest learning was he didn't take into account the prevailing culture and the meanings there, and assume that he could just drop drop it in from, you know, a very successful approach, but from a completely different context and culture. Yeah, that's a good um, lesson. Yeah. Um, so I think that, that was important. Um, a key part was probably aligning decision-making to whatever this, whatever this culture and this narrative looks like and being really consistent and quite public with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no ambiguity as to what some, a decision means. Um, so one of the key things for, for coaches would be around selection. So who you select and who you don't yeah. is a, what I would call a cultural symbol and it's a cultural sense maker. Mm. You know, it sends a message about what matters. Um, so that has to be really clear and clearly aligned to, if this, if we say this is very much like what Ray would say in his book, you know, if we say this is important, but I'm doing this or making these decisions and inviting these guys in, this is what, what is important is irrelevant now. Mm. Because my, my behaviours and my decisions have, have contradicted that. Um, big thing would be reframing change from like a big, a big sort of um, you know knight in shining armour on a white horse coming in to change everything and save the day to actually it's a daily effort. You know, and that change happens more in the subtle day-to-day conversations and yeah. in the corridors and in the changing rooms and on, in the warm-up. Um, more than a big presentation with nice glossy slides yeah. and, post- and posters on the wall. Yeah, it's kind of that, that 
I suppose it's a bit of a buzzword or buzzwords now that marginal gains kind of yeah. philosophy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It would be. A, it's a. It's about a. a yeah, a change is a continuous daily effort, not a an episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose yeah, to th- encourage coaches to th- think culturally. You know, so if I'm going to make a decision, what what cultural symbol does this um, communicate? You know, um, rather than just, you know, I think, you know, he's, he kicks well off his left, so I'm going to put him in the center today. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, actually, what's what's the cultural symbol there? So, um, a lot of my my thinking is around what we call almost anthropological. So you look at symbols and myths and stories and legends that are told within the culture. They actually communicate what really matters. Um, so. Those the stories that are told are what are what actually matters. So yeah. Yeah, how does a coach think culturally? Um, and that your your coaching has to match that, and I think that's like there's some great great nuggets out there for uh, you know maybe a coach who's going to a new club or you know has just started coaching themselves and you know wants to find what what is that starting point with this new mm-hmm. club or this team. Um, I think one. It's kind of the cart before the horse if you if you don't address these these issues potentially. Yeah, absolutely. I actually would make the argument that um, if you cultural stuff done badly is worse than not doing any cultural stuff. Mm. So doing your sort of stand, you know, because uh, I experienced it with players from the NRL that your sort of value session at the start of the season was very much a going through the motions thing. Mm. You know, like, oh, here we go again. We've got some sports psych in to do the values. Okay, we want to be relentless. We want to be, you know, respected. (laughs) We want to, you know, be tough. And then they never never talk of it again. Yeah, or Mm. or it ends up as uh, posters on the wall. But, um, you know, it's (laughs) I think we've all experienced that, eh? I think in the management literature, they talk about this sort of shadow culture. You know, you've got the stuff that you see on the glossy pamphlets and on the wall, but actually the shadow culture is actually what's really going on. Mm. Um, and that's the real stuff that affects your performance and affects your day-to-day um, progress. Um, a couple of the last ones, I'm conscious I'm talking too long, mate. Um, and I'm all over the shop. Uh, <laughs> ident- ident- for, for your example of a coach going to a new club, mm. um, the culture sort of, it, it needs to be head coach driven, but it also it sort of stops and starts with this idea of ident- identity. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, I think it was done very effectively at the Waikato Chiefs around where they, Dave Rennie, um, ex- I would be interested to see what he does when he goes to Glasgow. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But they're him and Wayne Smith and Tom Coventry and uh, Andrew Strawbridge um, spent considerable time, as I, as I understand, at the start of their tenure unpacking, well, what does it mean to be a Waikato Chief? What does it mean to represent the Waikato? You know, and that's going to be easier in certain places than others, you know, mm. um, like... Um, yeah, where, where there's that provincial or that representative element, and in a rep team, it's obviously a lot easier because you can say, well, what does it mean to be yeah. be on Team Canada? Yeah. You know, what does it mean to be Canadian? What's in our fabric of our being? You know, um, but that's a really good starting point, and yeah. it also engages people in a dialogue about reflecting on, well, what does it mean to play for this team? Yeah, you know, yeah. what does it mean to um, represent? Pull on, pull on the shirt, this badge, the jumper, or whatever, um, and what does that represent? And then the whole idea of the All Blacks legacy and. Um, which will be another good read if anyone's interested. Oh, so you've yeah. Worked, yeah, it's read, a, read that. Yeah, text doing the rounds is um, uh, James Kerr's legacy. Yeah, it's um, a great which, one. Um, there's certainly some mirrors with some of the work we did with the Kiwis around right. um, family and uh, and the, some of the stuff I've already talked about. All right. Uh, and um, last point would be never never underestimate what I call cultural cultural infrastructure okay. and inertia. So basically, the prevailing 
stuff that is going to get in your way when you join a new, when you come to a new club. Never underestimate the power of um, people. People are reluctant to change, and people will hold on dearly to um, what they think's right and the and the way things have been. You know, and you'll always be met, I suppose, as a new club, a new coach coming in. As um, mm. well, that's not how we do things here. You know, and that's an incredibly powerful um, uh, force that will work against change. Yeah, uh, that's um, a and, really good point. And uh, can frustrate change, and I would possibly argue maybe one of the number one reasons that a lot of, well, I think, you know, the state, the sort of stats would say, sort of, yeah, ninety percent of change efforts fail. Mm. You know, they, they fail to achieve what they intended. So that suggests that, you know, for all this research and all this stuff that people do and the leadership consultants and whatnot, you know, 90% of what we're trying is not working. So there's obviously some pretty strong forces that are working against us. Um, and, um, yeah, never underestimate that uh, when you come in. And um, I suppose the dogmatic way to look at it would be if a culture is a product of its people, who you let into the culture will ultimately define it. Yeah. So maybe the, the most critical performance impacting um, task of a coach would be who you select. Yeah, everyone, every, everyone's a leader in the team. Just some of them do it really badly. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> they're going to they're going to influence one way or another. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think there's some amazing stuff in there for coaches. Um, you know, I've got a I've got a bunch of ideas buzzing around in my head. So I always like to listen to the show uh, after I after I put it out. So. Um, you know, there's some great stuff there. Um, Thanks, mate. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a sexy topic culture, I think. It's, it's, and everybody t- talks about it, but mm, it's quite abstract and it's quite. Yeah. I probably haven't done it justice in no, the last. No, you absolutely, minutes, absolutely but, um, have. Yeah. Again, if anyone would be interested, then um, I'm sure um, you can find, find me on on Twitter or anything like that, and I'd be happy to share more or, or um, kick it around. I love talking about it. So yeah, uh, no, it's been it's, it's been great. Um, I think one one last question before we do our final four questions. Um, you're involved with a coach development academy. Um, I believe it's in Japan. Um, it is. Yeah. You, yep. you want to talk a little bit about that, and um, you know how how any interested coaches might want to get involved in that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I suppose it's um, just to frame it. Um, it's more target. It would be more targeted. Any of you got anyone who's working in coach development? Um, this role of coach developer is sort of emerging as a as a key role in the coaching landscape as the you know coaches spend all this time work you know helping the athletes to develop but who supports the coach um so this is a it's actually linked to the tokyo 2020 olympics um and it's been running for a couple of years now it's a um yeah, annual uh program which invites people from all around the world to um who are who are coach developers so if you're working in rugby i know the um world rugby do some really good work in this space anyway mm-hmm. um, if anyone is interested we we haven't had any we i think we've had one applicant from rugby but um but generally it's been a lot of other sports so if anyone's interested um it's called the um uh nssu icce coach developer academy um so that might be um yeah it's a the, probably the biggest selling point would be it's almost free so you get two weeks in tokyo um well one week and then six months of sort of professional development and support and how you support your coaches, um, and uh, and then capped off with another week in Tokyo. Oh, so um, uh, yeah, it's um, funded heavily funded by the Japanese government as trying to have an impact on coaching around the world. Um, and I just, as a passionate rugby man, I just like to be. Yeah, we've had lost few from football, which hurts me. Mm, um, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, yeah, it'd be great to have some people from rugby if they're interested. But yeah, it'd be targeted heavily at, or solely at people who are working in coach development rather than necessarily practicing coaches right. and I'll I'll, uh, I'll dig up the website there and put it in the show notes so if any listeners want to want to have a look at it they can they can just check it out and 
yeah, and thank uh, you. reach out to you or reach out to the main contacts on that page. Yeah, no worries. Perfect. Okay, well, um, I, I've had a great time chatting. Um, really enjoyed it. We. I all... think it's been one way, mate. It's my fault. Apologies. No, it's totally <laughs> fine. Uh, that's what the show's about. People, people don't want to hear me prattling on. So uh, yeah, it's been awesome. Um, we we always we always end the show with uh, the same final four questions. Um, when you were a kid growing up, you were obviously from a you know pretty heavy rugby background. What, who was one of your favourite players when you were a kid? These are my favourite questions of the whole 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 interview, mate. Yeah, um, awesome. <laughs> so favourite player as a kid, um, I struggled to go with one, um, mm. but I have to say I was a, I was a centre, um, and um, so for me. Two uh, players were Scott Gibbs, who played for um, Wales and the British Lions and played a bit of rugby league too. Yeah. Um, very honest, hard-hitting, courageous player. Um, strong ball carrier, um, solid defender, no airs and graces. Um, so I definitely would have modelled myself off him. Uh, I like that sort of you know, courageous, brave centre character, yeah. crash ball centre. And the second player would have been um, a, a fellow Aussie mate, a guy called Richard Toms who um, I think he had about five caps for the Wallabies in the 90s. But um, he came and played at Gloucester for a few years. And um, so I got to know him very, very well and um, was a really, really good man. Just a, uh, a good bugger and a, and a really honest player. So they were my two heroes as a kid. Awesome. I feel, I feel bad. I'm going to have to look him up because uh, the 90s was my dark days of rugby league. So uh, yeah, yeah. I'll, have to, I'll have to look him up. Oh, that's awesome. Waratah, I'm pretty sure oh, he's yeah? the one. Okay, beauty. I'll check it out. Um, all right. And what about now? Who are some of your favorite players running around? Um, well, one's retired. Conrad Smith has been someone uh, I've admired yeah. for quite a while. Again, Absolutely. a centre, so I'm probably biased. Um, yeah. So any of you guys in the front five out there are going to be pretty <laughs> bored with my examples because they all come from the midfield. Yeah. Um, so Conrad Smith, someone I've admired for a while. Yeah. Again, an honest player, who, uh, you know, an astute, an astute rugby brain. Um, and I just like the fact that he, um, in a world in a, or in a game which seems to um, promote and honour sort of the real physical specimens. He wasn't the biggest and he wasn't the fastest, but yeah. he was uh, the best outside center in the world for a, a period of time. And um, yeah. so very, very respected uh, Comrade Smith. Yeah. And the other one currently playing would be David Pocock. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, yeah, tremendous player. And again, this more sort of the, the character off the field too. He seems like a, a dead-on guy, you know. Absolutely, yeah. Um, a straight no. shooter and a, and, a, and a good bugger. Yeah, no, I, I'm big fans of both of those uh, players. So, yeah. Great choices. Uh, great to have an Aussie in there too. Well done. Um, <laughs> all right. What about uh, coaches? Uh, who's who's one of your favourite high-profile coaches going around? Um, Wayne Smith, I think, would be yeah. the one that would roll off yeah. the tongue. Um, again, because I feel like I've had a, a closer um, insight on him through uh, my colleague Lynn Kidman's book, which I, people haven't read it, Athlete Center Coaching. I think it's called De- Developing Decision Makers. Right. There's a chapter in there on Wayne Smith and his coaching philosophy and, and the way he approached it. Um, and then just the sort of reverberations around New Zealand of the sort of guy he is and the coach he is and, um, and the way he approaches his business. So a real, um, really would, for me, as far as I would know, would really embody Athlete Center Coaching. Yeah, and um, he he comes up in every second show as uh, someone's favourite coach, and uh, you know I, I'm really going to try hard to get him on the show. I think it'd be a great chat, and um, that book too, Athlete Centered Coaching, again uh, for part of the course mandatory reading. I suppose the, the thing is, you know, great good coaches will you know develop great athletes. Great coaches develop great athletes, and they develop great coaches. And I just wonder whether you know he's sort of for me. I wonder whether he's occupied this sort of. Um, you know, a mentor maybe role on the side. That's right. Maybe just ask the right questions and challenge and enabled everyone around him to grow. Um, oh, that's great. You know, rather than he's not you know, completely egoless. You know, 
could have had head coaching roles, but is yeah. happy sat in the, you know, in the side sidelines and um, out of the limelight. But clearly, a um, hugely respected rugby coach. Yeah, well, that's, so he, that's a, a hero of mine. That's a frightening prospect. Uh, as if uh, Wallabies fans don't have a hard enough time uh, in the current landscape. Now we've got Wayne Smith coaching future. All Blacks coaches, uh, it's, it's not going to get any easier. <laughs> okay, and what about uh, someone in the, you know, just in the grassroots of the game, or just someone who's just chipping away, doing a doing a good job, who, who deserves a shout out? Yeah, again, um, probably a little bit more distanced over the last couple of years. So um, my my examples would be slightly biased because they'd be people I, I know, and I would you know could shout out as a, a guy who's just taken on the attack coach slash backs coach role at Cardiff Blues. Okay. From he's moved from Bristol, a guy called Matt Sherritt, okay. um, known known as Jockey for his sort of um, Hobbit like size. Um, <laughs> he's not the tallest of fellows, but he's yeah he's a, a fantastic coach and um, a real sort of a, a, a emerging talent. And I, I, I imagine we'll see a lot more of him over the coming years. Um, yeah, astute tactician, but a good, a good coach, like the way he presents tactical problems and big on games. And um, yeah, no, I think he'll be one. And, and there's another I'd probably like to give a shout out for, slightly controversial because he's been recently uh, fired by um, Rugby Canada. Yep. But Liam Middleton, who okay. the, um, was the sevens coach, um, obviously disappointing they didn't make the Olympics this time round. But I yeah, know, know him personally, and he's um, a real honest guy and a real good straight shooter and in my eyes, a very good coach. So yeah. um, out of work at the moment, but I'm, I imagine we'll see him crop up somewhere else yeah, um, sure. in the seventh circuit. Yeah, but, I, never, I never got to meet him while he was here in Canada, but yeah, like coaches are hired to be fired, they say, and uh, I'm sure he'll, he'll bounce back and all the best to him. Cool. Yeah, yeah no. Two good guys. Yeah, awesome. All right, John. Well, like I said, I've had a, a great chat. Like like yourself, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about. So I really appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing your, your, your knowledge. And uh, I'm super confident that coaches have got a bunch out of this. I know I definitely have. Um, so, yeah, thanks again for, for taking the time to speaking with me. No, thank you, mate. Like I said, the um, the pleasure's been all mine, and I'm humbled to um, even be asked to uh, to come on and chat with you, mate. And uh, just hoping it wasn't too much one way. But um, it's all good. yeah, and again, happy to chat with anyone if they're interested in in the future about this stuff. So perfect. All right, mate. Well, uh, we'll we'll talk soon. Yeah, no worries, mate. All the best. All right, cheers. Take care. Bye. Lonely round the fields of Athens, right?